Hi, this is Pastor Frank at Frank's Bible Study. I just want to welcome you to this Bible study. In this episode, the rapture. I want to first start by saying, I am a firm believer in the rapture. But as a Bible teacher, I expound on Scripture to lay down fundamental and foundational truths that do not contradict each other. I believe there is an explanation for Scripture that seems to contradict one another. God cannot lie, and he is not a God of confusion. Now, the rapture amongst scholars, theologians, is ambiguous. The subject is up for interpretation and can have different meanings and conclusions in some Christian circles. Some will say the term rapture is a pseudonym and was basically coined uh, in the 17 or 1800s by uh, several people like uh, Dr. John Gill, Edward Irving, and John Nelson Darby. I know at least two of these men. Uh, they're well known for their Bible commentaries, and Christians use their theological studies. So the criticism of the term rapture as a pseudonym or a made-up word, also by definition is a pseudo-doctrine, or a made-up doctrine by men. So by definition of this criticism, the criticizers, well, they must be infallible, and by contrast, are saying the revelation of God in Scripture is over. It's settled that there's no more room for revelation or further understanding of Holy Scripture. This is why I believe that the Jehovah's Witnesses claim to have a copyright on doctrine and truth in Scripture. So in contrast, there are widely accepted doctrines of the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Since we're on terminology, and we're talking about terminology that doesn't appear in the Bible, but the very same people... They believe in this. So, number one, dancing in the Spirit, uh, slain in the Spirit, and laughing in the Spirit. So, there are Christian circles, like I said, that believe in these three phenomena, and they attribute it to the Holy Spirit. But these terms do not appear in Scripture anywhere. There is not one scripture in the Bible to firmly substantiate these three terms. But, say the rapture is a pseudonym? Really? In my opinion, that's just flat-out hypocrisy. The term Trinity does not appear in the Bible. But a majority of Christian believers, they believe in the Trinity. But that's another episode. If we are to argue about biblical terminology and biblical doctrine and what is specifically in the Bible and what isn't, I would simply ask a few questions. Is believing in unbiblical terminology disobedient? Iniquity? Or sin against God? And or does it contradict Jesus Christ? I believe that language has come a long way from the first century. So therefore, to summarize and to use synonyms is not sinful. 
It's just a shorter route to the meaning. I will explain that in part two. Believing in the rapture is not a sin, and at worst it merely keeps the believer in a constant moral readiness in the will of God and righteous living in Jesus Christ for his second coming. Now, to understand the rapture, we must understand Jesus Christ first from the Old Testament in redemptive history. How the rapture works as in being caught up in the air is irrelevant in comparison to being raptured. God is only powerful enough and wise enough to do this anyway. Being in the rapture at least says you are a true Christian, and those left behind will have to face an extremely harsh tribulation of an antichrist world. The rapture is a huge benefit of living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. The unpredictable nature of the rapture keeps the believer in a constant state of anticipation of Jesus' return as imminent. The prophecies surrounding the first and second coming of Jesus have to be gathered from the whole of Scripture. This is why reading your Bible is very important to identify the lies of a false prophet and teacher. Prophecy in general and the eschatological prophecies of the Hebrew Bible as well as the Gospels and Epistles are the key to expanding one's faith in the promises of God. When this is done accurately, the unfolding mystery of Jesus emerges. The way I study the Bible is to filter the scriptures and put Jesus Christ right at the center. I compare the rapture to the Exodus of Egypt, Exodus chapter 12 through chapter 13, as a type or shadow. As the Exodus and the rapture, both unprecedented. This is something for the very first time in scripture. This unavoidably brings up events that are unprecedented, or for the first time as well. God has given us, through the history of his salvation, references that are key to his fingerprint, if you will. God has given us a narrative to track the history of his salvation. The references are uncanny, but they are key to his fingerprint, if you will, to authenticate it is him. Although we will be tested with an antichrist, a false prophet, and the beast as an unholy trinity, counterfeit, or an antonym of God's will. The rapture does not make sense when it is isolated in the Gospels and the Epistles. Just like Jesus dying for our sins does not make sense until you read the Old Testament prophecies. When you examine the Exodus, you have the basic structure of salvation and redemption. The rapture harmonizes with the fingerprint of God when it comes to the history of salvation and redemption. God's timing is in His sovereignty. Only he knows and is kept from the world, as in the timing of the flood of Noah when it started to rain. God's people in bondage for 430 years is about 20 generations of bitter work and slavery. Understand this, though. This was no secret, but it was a prophecy in Genesis chapter 15 verse 13, with a massive purpose in God's unfolding mystery. At the time of Moses' birth, the 400 years is close and ripe. So the anticipation was there, and the Israelites were ready to be free. This is when the prophecy is to be fulfilled, and now the cries of freedom go up to God. I'm really not sure of God's will and purpose for the 400 years of affliction, but I can tell you the Israelites were ready to leave Egypt and serve God in their own land, in addition to that become a great nation and a blessing to all nations. God heard their prayers and their cries, and remembered his promise that he made to Abraham. Although under harsh conditions and pressure, God's people grew in number. 
infanticide or killing firstborn males under these conditions, one would think to just demoralize and emasculate the Israelites and use it as a means of population control. Scripture does not say why Pharaoh had the Israelite babies killed. But we could only assume that Pharaoh may have known of the prophecy of deliverance at or around the 400-year mark. Why else would the Israelites cry out to their God for deliverance if it were not true? Word gets around the workplace. Moses being born around the 400-year mark as a male baby would make him a candidate as a deliverer as any other male child. This would make him an enemy of Egypt and Pharaoh. The difference is that he floated to Pharaoh's daughter as a means to escape from being murdered. The threat of deliverance meant no slaves. This would change Egypt, Pharaoh's life. The way everything worked in Egypt would be ended, and I'm sure this is a major concern. This sounds very similar and uncanny to the narrative of Jesus Christ. It is obvious that the same Luciferian spirit that induced infanticide in Jesus' time and in ours The Messiah and the lineage of the Messiah are always at risk. This is a theme throughout the entire Bible. Persecutions and martyrs are still happening today. In addition, the 144,000 in Revelations. Don't forget about that. The 400-year mark of slavery was up. Adding Moses' years of life, hiding in the wilderness as a shepherd, raising a family, the burning bush, traveling to Egypt from Midian, And the plagues must be the 30 years for the total of 430 years. Exodus chapter 12 verse 40. From the time the Israelites were first enslaved in Exodus 1.8 at the time of the Exodus of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12 to 13. Moses is obviously not the prophesied Messiah and is disqualified because he led the children of Israel out of economic and political bondage, not sin and death. What seems to emerge is God takes his people out to bring them into himself. Scripture interprets scripture. We use scripture to collectively build a reference and themes from the Bible for clarity and understanding. As in the narrative of Noah, the rain came down and the ark went up. A flood at the time in the earth was unprecedented. It never rained. To the earth's population at the time, This was foolish to build a boat inland surrounded by trees of gopher wood. A fun fact is is that that the gopher wood is a conifer, and it is a Torea taxifolia, commonly known as the Florida nutmeg. Noah preached about the imminent flood and how the ark was the salvation of God in his mercy, grace, and love. Again, the timing is in God's sovereignty. Jesus refers to this in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 42. God's timing, and in connection to the second coming, all in one body of scripture. As the salvation theme emerges of a savior, this is our faith. We just differ on Messiah, timing, and how. The breakdown looks like this. In the flood of Noah, there are key factors. Number one, sin on a national level. Number two, a prophetic warning of judgment as a grace period. Number three, a way out of judgment in a salvation alternative. Number four, an imminent and pending grace period winding down. Number five, a dismissal of the judgment by non-believers. Number six, a proactive urgency of work and faith in the believers. Number seven, spontaneous judgment. God keeps his promise and follows through. 
Number eight, a provided salvation and the believers are saved by the Savior. And the last one, number nine, the unbelievers are judged and destroyed. Before I get to the summation of the Exodus, in Hosea chapter 13, verse 4, Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. And if we look into Titus chapter 2, verse 13, it says, Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. In the Exodus breakdown, number one, a child born in adversity. Number two, the child's life is threatened by mass infanticide. Number three, put on the waters of the Nile to save his life. Number four, taken in and cared for by the very same people that threatened his life. Number five, Moses runs from his crimes to a faraway land and ends up meeting God on a mountain called Sinai. Number six, God shows him what he needs to see and hear, which changes his heart and is now a prophet of God. Number seven, with much adversity, Moses overcomes because God is with him and delivers the entire nation of Israel, God's people, out of the bondage into the promised land. If you read both narratives of the flood and also of the Exodus, a messianic type and shout emerges in the narrative when it comes to Moses. A prophecy follows at the end of Moses' life. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. In both events of the biblical narrative, God is the Savior, providing salvation according to His sovereign timing, at the same time building an essence, a nature, a form, a reference for a foundational structure. I believe because Jesus refers to the days of Noah in conjunction with His second coming. And the Passover is an official command of God to retell and to remember His deliverance. The Seder plate retells the story of the Exodus through the ceremony and food. The Passover is about Jesus, the Messiah, the sacrificial lamb, and the atonement of sin. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Look for part two of the rapture. This is Pastor Frank at Frank's Bible Study. God bless and amen.